0: This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. There are uh, there are certain hymns, usually a hymn or a piece of music that are connected with funerals in our family. Um, when Danny... The brother I'd never met, Tim's older brother, was buried. It was, Savior, like a shepherd lead us, that was sung by the grave. When Dad died, it was, um, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's, um, I can't remember. But remember, this one was at Nate's funeral. And I don't think there's any hymn that does a better job of expressing the, the, the tradition being the democracy of, across the ages. Am I, am I putting that right? And that tradition being the, the, the allowing the voice of the dead. And this verse along with Hebrews 12, which I'm sure this verse, this, this song, the author. Who was the author of this song, of this hymn? your point, something like that, no, I'm sure he had to have it in mind as he was writing this, I want to uh, look together with you at John 12, 20 through 26, uh, it's probably a jumping off point, it may be a resting point at the end too, John 12, 20 through 26, this is the word of God. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and most of all for your Son, in all his glory and splendor who was the grain of wheat that fell to the ground and who stands as our example and as our strength as we seek to follow his command and to be true to his example. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Philip has a couple of Greeks come to him who are going up to worship at the feast There's some question as to whether these were actual Greeks or whether they were Hellenized Jews. Um, Calvin takes it that they are Hellenized Jews, but it's possible they weren't. I think I'm right about that with Calvin, that these are not necessarily Greeks. But uh, uh, no, I think it's Calvin who says that that it's like the centurion, the God-fearing centurion, but many others think that it's that it's a that Hellenized Jews they come to Philip and Philip goes to Andrew and of course the passage says they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee which we should know you know it's it's not uh, I don't know if this is the first time it's mentioned where he derives from in John but it's a fact that's known but he introduces it here John says that Philip was from there and it's it's probable that he says that they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, because Bethsaida, if if, if this is uh, you know the Palestine of Jesus' day, and Jerusalem is down around here, and Nazareth is up here, and in between is Samaria. Bethsaida was way up here, um, very close to what would be, I think, Syria or Lebanon today. Up at the northern end of things, and uh, and they said it says in, in some of the commentaries that Bethsaida uh, might have been a Greek speaking town. It was, at least Greek was known. Philip, Andrew, and Simon, and Andrew and Simon were brothers. Simon Peter, all bear Hellenic names. Their names are Greek. And so it seems like these people, whether they're Hellenized Jews or actual Gentiles who are God-fearers, come to those who they think may have certain sympathy with them. It's perhaps important that, you know, in some ways, which they were, because we don't really understand from this passage how Jesus responds to their request. We're not told whether they ever got to see Jesus. In fact, it seems like one of those weird non-sequiturs of Scripture that Jesus speaks and says, ah, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you go, well, the, the question is, can we see you? Uh, and he says the hour, and then it never says whether he meets with them or not. And you go, well, why, why would you respond that way? What's going on? I Most commentators say that... It, that Jesus is speaking by the hour in which he's to be glorified being his death because he immediately then goes on to say that uh, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit and then calls his disciples to lose their lives, to hate their lives in this world, to keep them to eternal life. And so it seems like he's saying, I'm about to be glorified, I'm about to die, I have more important things to do. But that that statement, the hour has come for the, the Son of Man to be glorified, could actually be referring to what went before rather than what follows after. It's, it's obviously the fulcrum of this passage around which things bend. But uh, the question is, is it is it referring to what comes after Or is it referring to what comes before? And this is where I really like what Calvin says about this passage because he says people think that Jesus is referring to his being glorified being his death. But his death is not his glorification, is it? Earlier in chapter 12, it says that Jesus had not yet been glorified. And it's very clear from that that the Holy Spirit had not yet come. It says he had not been glorified. And it's very clear that when John is speaking of Jesus' glorification, it's attached to his resurrection and to the Holy Spirit coming in the revelation of God's approval of him that's implicit or explicit in the resurrection. And so when Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, um, Calvin says, that's not his death. What he's saying is, look, my fame, my gospel. It's not a self referential thing. My gospel has spread. And even these guys, these Hellenized Jews or these Gentiles, look at the gospel and how it's going. And then he refers to how it happens, and it's through his willingness to die. It's through his willingness to die. And it becomes a principle because it's not just an observation of what has happened and what they're just seeing, that he's being glorified because he's the grain of wheat that's come to die. You understand? but that you must do the same. And so the call is, do the same thing I've done. I've come to die. I've come to die. A grain of wheat falling to the ground. And we think that the grain of wheat fell to the ground at Calvary, but of course we know if we think about it that the grain of wheat began to fall to the ground. The minute in the Godhead there was the plan that the Son of Man should be crucified, and he was crucified from the foundations of the world. So from the very incarnation, it was understood that the serpent... Uh, excuse me, from the very creation it was understood that the serpent was going to strike at the heel of Eve's seed. But that the heel of the seed would crush the serpent. And so it's, it's, it's clear that from the very beginning it was understood that this grain of wheat would fall to the ground and that in falling to the ground and in being bit on the heel, and there are so many other ways of speaking about it in Scripture, this falling to the ground of Jesus, this being hit, bit, this being the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world, all these things refer to Jesus, not just in his death, but in his life on earth. Jesus was the seed that fell to the ground the minute the incarnation came into the redemption, the atonement came into the mind of God, because it foresaw his fall, his his emptying himself, his taking on the nature of man. The the death of Jesus was there in the birth of Jesus. The idea that Jesus, the Son of God, would become a little baby and, and have to flee from a man, Herod, who he upheld by his own hand, even as an infant. It was not without his power that Herod breathed and sent his soldiers and, and, and sort of spoke his, his hatred of Jesus. Jesus is sustaining him. Jesus is sustaining the soldiers who crucify him. He's sustaining the world. He's sustaining the cross. Without his will, without his, his express approval and will, the cross would dematerialize. There wouldn't be a cross. And so, in so many ways, Jesus is falling to the ground. He's falling to the ground throughout his life. You think of Isaiah and what he speaks about Jesus. The things he says about Jesus. He was despised and rejected of men. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He didn't look good. He didn't look cool. I suspect if we looked at Jesus and we compared him with a guy in our day, he, he would not be a guy who was even uncool in the way that the, the, uh, the hipsters are uncool. He was just uncool. He didn't have the, the mod glasses. He didn't have the tattoos. He didn't have... He was not cool, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. How many of us look in the mirror before we preach and think that our looks are part of our message? How many of us are very, very concerned about our appearance and the the way that we cast ourselves before the eyes of men? Jesus didn't care nor appearance that we should be attracted to him so no stately form or majesty that might be a reference to office but it becomes personal nor appearance that we should be attracted to him he was not he was a man from whom med men hid their face he was the guy that walking through school people went oh man i hope i hope i don't have to be seen as attached to him this was his falling to the ground. Despised, rejected of man. He was despised. We did not esteem him. How many times Isaiah says he was despised? He was despised. This, this grain of wheat is falling to the ground, not just at the cross, but in the despising of men for him. They despised him. And he calls you, and he calls me to be like him and falling to the ground, to be despised, to be hated, to be the kind of guy that as you walk through the campus or as you walk through the town center, people look at you and go, Ugh. you've heard of Charles Simeon of Cambridge. How many of you have heard of Charles Simeon? Dad gave me one a couple. Dad gave me a, a little biography of it's called Simeon of Cambridge. Beautiful little book, and I encourage you, if you get a chance to get it and read it, to do so. It'll be a real encouragement to you. Together with Dalamore's huge book, the, the, the biography of George Whitfield, those two biographies, and To the Golden Shore of Adoniram Judson, all of them speak of the suffering of these men. Oh, and they're beautiful. They're so encouraging. You want to be encouraged as a pastor, read Adoniram Judson's To the Golden Shore, his life story, read uh, Simeon of Cambridge, read Dallimore, Life of Whitfield. But Charles Simeon went to Cambridge as a a wealthy young man. His father was able to, had had influence and status and money. And he went there, and at Cambridge, Cambridge at the time was known as a godless school. You know, it was like Harvard is today, no... Maybe at one time some connection with things of God, but by the time that Simeon was there, and Simeon was there in what, late 1600s, early 1700s, 1700s, and, uh, and he went there not as a Christian, but while he was there, he was marvelously converted, and his dad was deeply disappointed in his son, that his son had converted, you have it, wonderful, I, I may have this wrong because this is occurring to me as I'm talking to you, but I'm thinking about Jesus and his being a man from whom men hid their faces. And I'm thinking, it struck me about Simeon. His father had money, and, uh, and when his son became a Christian and said, I want to go into the ministry, the father went, Ugh, and finally said, well, if you're going to go into the ministry, we're going to do it right. And so back in those days, there was, uh, was Simeon, and positions, holdings, they're called, were bought and sold. And so his father said, well, if my son is going to be a pastor, he's going to be impotent as a pastor. And we're going to put him, going to put him somewhere where he can be impotent. And so he bought the, the pulpit of a church of the, one of the main, maybe the main church in Cambridge for his son. So his son gets out of school. He's this young guy. He's alive for the Lord. And the father buys him the pulpit of the main church in town. And so the son starts preaching, and the people, and he's he's bold. And he has that freedom not to worry about money, you know, that so often keeps us from being bold. Sometimes it occurs to me that the best pastors are those who give everything away, and who don't make any, ah. I was struck, Nathan went up to visit a church in Detroit. And it's growing, and it seems like a strong and powerful church. Would you agree, Nate? And it has nine services or something like that of 600 or 700 people, and they build their building themselves. The uh, They have all the young people and all the old people in the church. It's mainly young. Come on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2 until midnight, and they work. And on Saturdays, all day, and the lead elder, of this six, seven thousand person church leads the people, and they they built three buildings this way, rehabbing old shopping centers. But the the interesting thing is that the pastor of this church has worked construction. He started by as a youth leader and had a job in construction, and he still works construction as a forty five year old, and is pastor part time. And uh, there are other pastors who are full time, but he's part time remember the the time that we were talking to to uh, Phil Jensen who was pastor at that time of how many of you have heard of Phil Jensen in Australia pastor of a very large church in Australia with dozens of staff members we were talking to him he was criticizing the American Church and the American pastors for their desire for money he's saying you guys all it seems to be is about money here so someone sort of pushed back a little bit like well how do you do things maybe you sell your books and you don't have to take a salary but you're making millions and we've known pastors who have that right and so we're and he says oh no all my all the royalties from my books go back to the church I don't take a penny he said in fact I'm the fourth or third highest paid guy in the church I'm not number one there's a guy with 10 kids who has to drive a lot and he gets the most money All right, well, Simeon is in this church. He has the freedom of not needing money. And, and he walks through the campus where he had just graduated. And, he, and no one will talk to him. And, in fact, the people who own the boxes, the pews in this church, will not attend. And they lock, the, am I right about this, that it was Simeon? They lock the doors so that others can't sit, so that anyone who comes, uh, the people with the money in the church, lock the doors and they won't come. And so everyone who comes, it's like Simeon is preaching from here to a, a small crowd, and they're all seated up there in the balcony. And it was, I think it was a dozen years, I'm, I'm quite certain it was t- it, over 10 years, before he was able to walk across the campus And for the first time since he graduated, one of the people in his church was willing to be seen walking across the campus quadrangle with him. Because he preached the gospel of Jesus and he lived it. And men hid their faces. And his joy, when he went home and said, today for the first time in in his life as a pastor, a decade, someone was willing to be seen with him on campus at Cambridge. He began that way. And he went on, and he was the founder of the movement that became the Cambridge Movement. The missionary movement came out of that. He worked there. But that same attitude, the seed falling to the ground, was his at the end of life. Because at the end of life, he was sick, or he was out of town. And a young man came in, and he'd been pastor there 30 or 40 years at this point. And what happened when the young man began preaching? You can guess. Everyone went, whoa, this guy's good. And they're a little tired. They've heard Charles Simeon for years. And they like this young guy. And what did Simeon say? He said exactly what John the Baptist said. He said, it's come. He must increase and I must decrease. It is It is a glory and a happy thing to, to resolve at the outset of life that I'm a seed falling to the ground so that I may bear fruit. I am just a seed I must fall to the ground. My life must be one that follows my master and my savior. I am a seed. But, of course, we live in a day in which bearing fruit is is not the deal. What is the deal is looking fruitful, looking actually, looking um, fruitful, looking... Uh, There's a word there, and I can't come up with it. You know, looking, thank you, Philip, looking, the picture of fruit, you know, voluptuous, uh, tumescent, no, it's something like, yeah, but but not, you know, and so it's a chronic, it's Kate Upton, you know. It's looking, 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 but never being, right? And that's, of course, the American church, isn't it? We want to look fruitful, we want to think we're fruitful, we want all the outward marks of fruitfulness, but we aren't willing to die. And so we won't be fruitful. We are not fruitful. We talk about fruit, we talk about it, we talk about it, but there's so little fruit. I want to talk just briefly about, about the ways we need to die if we're going to bear fruit. And, and one, one very obvious way, but one I, I want to re- really emphasize, is that you can't bear fruit and, and at the same time brag about what you were. In other words, this woman who had been misal, this woman could not be what she had been and looking to be what she had been and bear children. It just, it it wasn't going to work. As long as you're looking at where you came from, you're not going to be fruitful. So in, in Jesus' life, he had to empty himself, as Philippians tells us. He had to say, I am emptying myself of what I've been. Of all my glory, of all the status I had, I have to empty it. I'm putting it aside. And this is true of us as well. Everything that we have, that we take pride in, God is going to say, get rid of that, you know. Get rid of it. And so if it's your intelligence, and you, you were a, a really great student, don't think that God is going to let you keep your intelligence. That that's going to be a hallmark of your ministry. It won't be. Jesus put aside his kingly glory and he came to earth and he was a man without a, without a place to lay his head, a man without friends. He, it, it, he had to leave it behind. If you have gifts and music or other things, the, the odds are that God may give them back to you at some point. But so often in scripture, the men of God, who are the great leaders for God, are men who have to just absolutely renounce their past. And then they have to go through the hardship of having people say, uh, do you know about this? Aren't you aware of that? As though they, they are ignorant of the thing that they once were. You know? So Jesus is the son of God. And yet the people around him are willing to tell him what God is like and to say to him, you're crazy. His mother and his brother say, well, you're crazy, man. And the chief priest will say, you're a blasphemer. They're willing to tell him that they know more about God than he does. I think of Paul and uh, and of Paul being the, the student of Gamaliel and how striking it is. And I don't know where I've read this or heard this, but how striking it is that, that Paul would be made The apostle to the Gentiles while Peter is made, you know, the apostle to the Jews, because if there was one man who was fitted to be the apostle to the Jews, it was the student of Gamaliel, the the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Hebrew of Hebrews, this guy. And yet God says, all right, you've done your time under Gamaliel. You have this pedigree and it is the prime pedigree in Judaism. And now, you know what? I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Where that pedigree doesn't mean squat. And he's going around among the Gentiles. And you think about it. And you think about Paul. And you think about him having been a Gentile, a Jew of Jews amongst the Gentiles. And how perversely frustrating it must have been to Paul. To hear the people say, hey, we've learned about this thing called the law. You know, and Paul, you know, why would you keep this from us? You know, we've learned some things you don't know. You know, let me tell you about the law, Paul. You know, and Paul goes, huh? Huh? You're telling me about the law? You know, but he can't say that because that's putting himself on the pedestal. And he has to say, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. But let me be a little bit insane for a moment and talk to you about me. And then I'm going to get back to Jesus, right? You know? And so you have, you have in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, he, Paul is saying, look, I, I want to talk to you about me. Boasting is necessary, but it's not profitable. But I'll go on. Or <laughs> and, he, and he says, I want to tell you a few things on behalf of such a man I will not boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses, for I don't wish I do wish to boast. If I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given me. Ah, uh, I'm I'm moving on. I meant to start in eleven, all right, where he says uh he says, in beginning in verse twenty one to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison compared with these teachers of the law, these super apostles. but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews, so am I? <laughs> imagine Paul having to say, Are they Hebrews so I'm a Hebrew, yeah. Uh, are they descendants of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. (laughs) I left these things behind, and now I'm having to pull them back into my life and say to you, I know these things. I tasted these things. I know what it's about. I'm not speaking out of my hat. I was there, and I want to tell you a few things about it. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times, and then he goes on. He speaks about himself, and then he says, you know, this is crazy, this boasting it's crazy. I want to speak to you about Christ, but I've got to speak to you a little bit about me and say, when I speak about Jesus, it's not that I don't know the other system." It's not that I'm ignorant of the law or of Judaism. I speak of Jesus because he's captured me. He captivated me. I speak about Jesus as one who has seen Jesus. And I've left all this behind. I think of of how many of God's great leaders had to die to everything that was their strength as they saw it growing up. So uh, let me go way back in time to Moses raised in the house of Pharaoh, a a son of Pharaoh, but choosing to suffer mistreatment with the children of God, and then into Midian, back sent by God to draw the people out. And he gets the people out, and they constantly say to him, we want to go back to Egypt. We had it better in Egypt. And he says, you think you had it good as slaves in Egypt? You want to go back as slaves? You remember my story? I was a king in Egypt. I was of the Pharaohs in Egypt, and I left it. And you want to go back? Who do you think you are? You, you can imagine it. You, you hear it in. Him. You know you want to go back to Egypt, but you can't say it, because it's the lot of leaders to die. We must die. We must suffer if we're going to call people to suffer. We can't boast in our suffering. Paul for a little bit there in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 says, okay let me just for a few minutes be insane and speak about what I know, but I've left it and I don't make it the basis of my boast. I boast in this that I have been that I've gone into heaven, that I've seen Jesus. So Moses, you think of, uh, of David with Absalom and the rebellion and how David when Absalom turns on him and everyone follows Absalom is, don't you remember what I did for you? Are you so quick to abandon me? But when Shimei is cursing, he says, perhaps God, he's a, he's a seed willing to fall to the ground. You hear John the Baptist when David says to Shimei, well, let him curse. Perhaps God, you hear John the Baptist saying, well, he must increase. And You hear Charles Simeon saying, okay, Lord, let him become something. I'm willing to die. If Christ is honored, I will become nothing. Joseph in Potiphar's house, once the son of one of the great sort of tribal leaders of the of the Mideast, and now he's a servant. And he doesn't go back and say, Well, I was a great man once. My father was a great man. Daniel. Nehemiah, who leaves the, the position of being cupbearer to the king, comes back to this. This crude city with its walls falling down. And there he's opposed by everyone and he has to rally the people. And he can't say, I'm the man. Look at what I've done for you. He's a seed falling to the ground. The, the truth of scripture is that we, it is given to man once to die. And after that, the judgment. But that's speaking of physical death. There's only one physical death. It is given to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But all men must die twice. Because in that verse, what's implicit is that following the death that's physical comes the judgment. And in the judgment, there will be many who will die again, but this time eternally, the spiritual death, the second death. So there's actually two deaths, and that verse is speaking only of the physical death. It's given to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But we all must die two times. And, and either we die spiritually in the judgment or we die before we die by falling to the ground, by worshiping Jesus, by, by dying, by being included with Jesus. And Paul says in, in the word that we are to fill up in our flesh the sufferings of the Lord. It's a mysterious statement, and it's one that we don't dwell on often. But we can't cast it out of our Bible. It is the call of Christians to suffer as Jesus suffered. And if we are to be pastors, we must become men who are falling, falling, falling to the ground. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is at the end of his life. And he's speaking on the plains of Moab to the Israelites, to his people. And he's pronounced the woes and curses of Gerizim and evil. And then there's the song of Moses. And it's the song of what God has done for his people. But in verse 15, after it talks about how God took Israel and blessed him and Herds of cows and milk of the flock, fat of lambs and rams, the, the breed of Bashan and goats with the finest of the wheat, and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. This is how their, their Lord, their God, treated them, their father. You, he just, he lavished his blessings on you, Moses says. And then, immediately the next verse, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him. It's the the routine picture of Scripture that when prosperity comes to the people of God, the people of God are no longer the people of God in all too many cases. We're told in in First Chronicles that when that when Rehoboam consolidated the kingdom after the departure of the northern. Um, tribes under Jeroboam. When he had consolidated his kingdom and was at peace, his heart grew proud and he departed from the Lord. It's a principle. It's a principle. When Jeshurun grows fat, he kicks. When Jeshurun is fat, he no longer wants to die. And we are, we are the, the servants of a God who has, who has blessed our church. For, for centuries, the church in America... Was blessed and blessed and blessed. And in the last century, somewhere between 1940 and 2000, that church began to realize that you could make money off of God, and that you could be wealthy, and that you could have God and be sleek and fat. And it grew fat and sleek. And it doesn't say it's kicking, it never says it's kicking, but it's kicking. It's kicking. And so you have the, the fruit of that church. And they're evident everywhere we turn. You can't help but see it when you turn to my Google Now cards on my Android phone. Stories about Rob Bell, child of that church, you know. Son of the Reformed Movement. Graduate of Wheaton College. Everything that you'd want if you wanted a pedigree that was evangelical. As, as, as great a pedigree in a sense as Paul as a Jew... And he's fat and he's sleek. He is the perfect product of our church, right? And he now is on Oprah and he's talking to us and saying, we're just moments away from the church, understanding that we shouldn't pay as much attention to letters written 2,000 years ago when we're in the presence of physical love right before our eyes, human beings who love. we We will accept homosexual marriage. That's evangelicalism, isn't it? Intervarsity, the the man who led varsity into uh, the acceptance of homosexuality, The president just died, and he's being lionized. You know, everyone, I've, I've seen all these articles about him, Hainer. yeah, yeah. Um, it, 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 to my mind, it's it's incomprehensible that Mr. Taylor's publishing company. Tyndale House, Mr. Taylor was a great man of God. Mr. Taylor didn't live for the money that came out of Tyndale House. I don't know if you you heard a little bit about Merrilee Lee's background. I I am convinced Mr. Taylor could have had hundreds of millions of dollars. Did have it, but gave it all away. Hundreds of millions. He didn't live for money. But Jeshurun grows sleek and fat. The Left Behind series comes and goes and you have to feed that fat beast, don't you? And so you start publishing books about kids who went to heaven and came back. Books that on the very face of scripture, the point of demand wants to die. You'd say, come on. We're fat. But let let me bring this home. Not talking about those people. Talking about you and me, Moses is speaking of Jeshurun, growing fat, scorning the rock of his salvation, making him jealous with strange gods, despite his blessing. Remember how that uh, that chapter ends. This this great man who left Egypt to bring his people to freedom is at the end of the chapter, he speaks about how the people have, have wandered from their God, how they will wander when they grow fat. And then he says, he came and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all these words. And chapter ends, the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die. Die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. We may preside over a church that we see as gesturing, but we are sinners. We are less than Moses. Never been a leader like Moses. We are less than Moses, and we must be willing and understand the need for us to die. Die in our reputation. Puritans, their children, you know, They raised their children. They came and... The pilgrims, our Puritan ancestors... They came to give their children... The freedom to worship God... To establish something that would be pure. And you know that those children... As the parents got old... And as they grew up... And as some of them traveled back to London... Came back to the Plymouth Colony... And said, hey, you know, there's a real life out there. There's a world out there. Let me tell you how fun it is. And the parents are going... They're being rejected by their children, their children who think they found something that the parents didn't know about. You're going to die that way. We must die that way. We must say, you know, yeah, I left it. I, it's, I, I can't even brag in it because I came here for Christ. I'm here for Christ. I'm not here against that. We're not here against the evangelical movement. We're here to follow Jesus. And Jesus died and he called us to die and to be fruitful along with him. If we are going to be pastors and we won't suffer, we won't suffer in our wallets, we won't suffer in our reputation, we won't suffer in our sense of coolness, then we will never lead people to Jesus. I wanna close by um, telling you one thing, one addition to a story that Tim spoke of the other day. He talked about mud when dad died. And her keening, which is like a high whale. Ah. But about 15 years after dad died, Nate, our brother who died, and uh, we've spoken a number of points about Nate, our younger brother who died. Nate was going down and down and down. And uh, I had taken mud down because we knew his death was imminent. We'd taken her down. I had taken her down to, to, to Bristol to be with Nate, and it became clear that our presence there was sort of keeping the family, that nuclear family from being, so I said to Mud, Mud, we gotta go, Nate's gonna die, and we're not gonna be here for it, but we gotta go, let's go back to Toledo, it's about an eight hour drive, and we'll wait in Toledo, and for Nate to die, and so we drove back to Toledo, and Mud was in our house in a room right next to ours, and four or five days went by, and we were just waiting, and then the word came, I got a call at 5 a.m., 4 a.m., something like that, maybe 3, I don't remember. But I got a call, and I knew immediately it was word that he had died, and it was Sandy saying Nate died. He had died earlier that evening, that night, in the middle of the night, and she was calling to tell me. So I thought, okay, I got to go and tell Mud. You know, she hadn't woken up. She was 80, 81. This is her fourth son to die. Up until that joke, at that time in our family, the joke was... Three down, four to go for the kids. But once it became four down, three to go, we didn't joke anymore. <laughs> it was no longer funny. And I went in to see Mud to tell her that Nate had died. And she got up and she sat by the, I remember her sitting on the side of her bed. And, and I said to her, Mud, and she said, he died, right? And I said, yeah, He died. And she sat there and had sort of a faraway look. Mudd, Mudd did say on a couple occasions that only late in life that when Danny had died of leukemia, that for days afterward in the house she would hear singing. And she thought it was the voices of angels so i watched her sitting on the edge of the bed and and i she had this this dreamy look on her face and i thought what is what i said mud what are you thinking you know and cuz it was weird it was there was nothing other than this And she got a smile on her face and she said, the glory. And it is good to suffer for God. It is good to be called to fall to the ground. Because when we fall to the ground, then we bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, God is glorified. And when God is glorified, we can be happy. So suffer. Let's suffer together. Let's suffer and not be cool. Let's just suffer for the sake of our great Savior. Let's suffer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus and the glory of his life and his love for us. I pray, Lord, That we will fall to the ground and in suffering become like Jesus, fill out in our flesh the sufferings of Christ, be fruitful in every way, Father. May the children of the men who are here be good fruit. May our churches be filled with good fruit. May you allow us to be fruitful and may you be glorified in us, we pray. Thank you for these dear men, Father. Bless their churches. Make a new movement of power to arise from the ashes of Jeshurun. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnutfellowship.org.